Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, as millions face travel chaos this week, despite union train drivers enjoying pay bumps of up to 62% in recent years, we expose the fat cat salaries of the rail bosses who are jointly killing our railways. The White House has drawn up plans to retaliate against Iranian-backed militants in the Middle East following the drone attack that killed three American soldiers in Jordan. And green-focused councils around the country are accused of having a do-as-I-say not as I do attitude over their sky-high energy bills. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here at Talk TV. You've obviously chosen the right place to be tonight because this is the one and only home of common sense. And I'm going to be telling you how right I've been all along. Right about the immigration figures that are growing so fast, we're heading for a population of about 74 million. Right about why electric car owners were going to get clobbered for tax. And right about why we need to arm our police properly. It's all going to come at you in the next two hours. So get ready. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Strap yourselves in. So there's more travel chaos for millions this week as as left train drivers have gone on strike again. But the fat cat rail bosses at these train operators received bonuses, unbelievably, of up to £1 million last year, despite being too scared to take on the hard left unions who were letting passengers down. On top of that, new laws brought in to minimise the impact of rail strikes were doomed to rail. See what I did there? According to government ministers. Uh, let's talk to the panel straight away tonight because we've got a great one here. Barrister and broadcaster Andrew Eborn, spectator journalist Ben Lazarus, and broadcaster and writer Emma Wolfe. Welcome, one and all. Happily, you didn't have to try and get here by train, I presume. No, because uh, uh, for the next nine days, I think, there's going to be sort of strikes in one part of the country or another designed to really, really just completely and utterly piss people off, for want of a better a word. A little cheeky bonus in February with another five days. Yeah, but do you know what? I've been listening all today from, from Mick Whelan and various others about how we haven't had a pay rise for five years. Um, and it turns out, yeah, that may well be true. However, up until something like um, last year, they had had an average train driver's salary increasing by 34% since 2012, the highest increases across 15 different operators, up 55%, up 62%. Um, salaries now averaging 60,000 a year, up from 44,000 10 years ago. So in the last 10 years leading up to this latest argument, they've done pretty well. 
Yeah, and I think what I love about your show, Mike, is that you always shine more light and less heat. Let's That's do it. it. Let's have the facts. Yeah. Um, what I find extraordinary, however, is why they're not imposing these minimum service levels. We've just had the yeah. new powers on the relevant people. 40% they're allowed, basically, they can say. And if they don't comply, they can get fines, yeah. the union, and also the unfair dismissal protection goes out the window. Yeah. So they should be a lot tougher, shouldn't they? Well, they should, but apparently LNER threatened to do this to their uh, striking work. And they said, right, if you do that, we'll strike for five days instead of one. They're worried so, that, yeah, imposing these MSLs, these right. minimum things that you absorb. I know. Minimum service levels. I know. Levels. I didn't know that was short for it. But I know. Were. IHA. The, <laughs> I hate <laughs> I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the government <laughs> appeared to have bungled the issue as well, yeah. of course. Well, of because course. they've been saying, I mean, Rishi Sunak's been out there saying he would expect them to impose the minimum mm. service levels, but actually, you know, can't really enforce it. It's not going to enforce it on the, on the four I mean, there companies. Are there any laws that, that this government that, can enforce? No, really not. They brought in the Strikes Act in November, yeah. and they did that, um, you know, in the face of opposition mm. from Labour, from yeah. the unions. It was quite a tough bill to pass in the House of right. Lords, um, and that was supposed to bring in this this rule that the that the trains would always to, run effectively forty well, percent yeah. when they were striking, and the government don't seem to have enforced that whatsoever. Mm. The eighteen train companies have just sort of done what they like, and the government seems too distracted, worrying about vaping to. I know. They're, they're also going to say it's not just about money. They're going to say it's about the way that they're, the working conditions and stuff. Well, the, yeah, unions, yeah. the, the union guys things. are very smart. I mean, they're not stupid and they're mm. running rings around the government. And they'll talk about safety as well. Yes. They'll talk they'll about safety sort of rather than talking about yeah, yeah. the fact they want more money. Yeah. And the thing is, we all, of course, we have to support the right of workers to form unions, to collectively withdraw their labour, but at what cost... Well, not cost, in every case. But at what cost to the public? Yeah. Because this is the public going about trying to get to work, yeah. trying to just go about exactly. their business, trying to get people... You know, I know school children who can't get back from school. Yeah. You know, don't, don't school live A lot of school children take trains to get to school. Absolutely. And yeah. they will not be able to do so. And, and it's not just the general public, it's the knock-on effect, things like the hospitality industry. Mm. And they were saying today it's cost 350 million on top of the billions they've already lost. We say lost. hospitality, hospital, yeah. hospital. And, and, well, hospitals well, and, hospital hosp hospitals yeah. and hospitality like that. Right. and all that sort of stuff. And, and sort of how many low-paid workers, you know, would, who are on average salaries would have been really inconvenienced today, tremendous stress, nurses who might not be able to get to hospitals to treat patients, et cetera. And this is basically because the train drivers don't want to accept going from 60,000 a year to 65,000 a year. I exactly. Mean, that's, that's, and they don't that's want to modernise either, and yeah, they keep no. insisting that they must have a secondary person on the train, yeah. you know, because people feel safe. It's all a load they're, of old cobblers at the end of the day. They're paid almost double the average salary yeah. in the yeah. country. Yeah, exactly right. Well, at the time um, when it was revealed how much of these increases had happened since 2012, they were actually beating inflation by quite some margin. Right. You know, 62%, I think, uh, up in pay from, uh, you know, even when inflation was running at sort of 20%. So they were doing pretty well. But the thing is, you know, we've, we've got chock full of lawyers in the Houses of Parliament, yes. right? MPs, there's more lawyers than you can shake a stick at. They don't seem to know much about the law. They keep making laws that don't work. Mm -hmm or that cannot be sort of acted upon. It's, it's crazy that we've got the law, as we say, to turn around and get these minimum service yeah. levels and they're not enforcing it. It's yeah. complete rubbish on that sort of basis. But what's also interesting is the general public, when the doctors went out on strike, the general public sometimes would support them and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know anybody in the general public who is supporting the train drivers' strikes. Uh, we, we sort of, we were speaking earlier, so we should try and put their case with all these... It right. was we, thought so we'd try. we thought we'd try and come out and support the strikers, Mike, but it we, just didn't yeah. really... Well, 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 I'm very glad. It didn't really work. I'm glad you didn't 
do that. Well, I mean, the doctor's strike, um, <laughs> yeah. the last one, they didn't even bother having a picket line outside Guy's Hospital. They just didn't bother turning up, yeah. um, which is to your question about should people have the right to strike. But let's not give it all to the unions because we've also got to blame the fat cats who are running these train companies because the whole system is buggered, quite frankly. Um, Arriva gave its top executive over a million pounds in pay and perks in yeah. 2023. First Group's two, two top bosses shared bonuses of 1.3 million. Go Ahead's chief executive got a 540,000 pound booster paid for what? And, you know, and these, these, the point, these are companies yeah. who get huge subsidies. Yeah. The train companies get something like 12 billion a year in right. subsidies. So, you know, we're, I mean, again, we're, we're copying only, up for only it. this country and this government and, you know, other governments before it could privatise something, but we still pay. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Mm. But the interesting thing is what it says in their employment contracts. Because what's going to happen, you should make it conditional upon certain things. So strikes should be penalties and so on and so forth. You need to have... What they're doing is looking at performance-related pay. Yeah. They will argue that actually some of these are European enterprises and they're making a lot of money. And if they're making a lot of money, then the bonus system in the employment contracts does exactly that. What they should do is tie it into the strikes as well. Tie it into efficiency and targets and then work on that basis. So it's performance-related pay. But the, the problem starts... With the employment contract. Yeah, but these are all people that are based here, aren't they? These are not people who are running foreign but, railways. They but, might but, have a but group. But sometimes that runs the benefit it. is from the group. Yeah, but I don't think that Arriva's top executive has got anything to do with any other European rail company. And I don't think First Group either, because no. First Group uh, is, is, a, is a company that operates purely and simply in Britain. And it's just nonsense. It just sends the wrong signal, doesn't yeah. it? If you'd have pardoned the pub. Signal, I think. We love See the pub. Keep on track. It's, <laughs> it's worth pointing out, too. I mean, we talked about percentage rises before with, with the drivers. Yeah. But if, if, you, if you dig down into the data on the sort of Salaries of the top bosses; mm. um, those earning a you know circa a million a year. These mm. were, these were like thirty to sixty percent raises on the previous yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Um, really, and one really of the things I've in. been hearing today all day is that an awful lot of train drivers have done well because they've been poached by other railway companies. Yes. Because it's cheaper to nick somebody from another railway company than it is to train somebody. There we go. So as usual, train you know, the great British practice of not bothering to train anybody to do any jobs yeah. means that we've got a shortage, presumably, also, of train drivers. do you notice drivers. the way it's been planned, these nine days of 24-hour yeah. rolling strike? Yeah. It really paralyses the country. Because yeah. one day, you maybe can get to work. The next day, you can't. The next day, your kids can't. The next day, yeah. you... You know, it really is. It's kind awful. Of, it's and, and fewer and fewer people are using the railways. Because yeah. I think it was a Ministry of Transport study that came out Compared to pre-COVID levels, train travel is now down by something like 25 to 30%. Yeah. Because a lot of people, and I'm one of them, just wouldn't use the train. You just can't trust no, it. If, if you can't not... let the train take the strain... No, it's a I mean, I had, to go, I had to go to the Edinburgh Festival last year for yeah. just a quick trip for one night only, and yeah. I flew. Because I was like, I can't take a chance you on, can't take on a taking a train. sitting on a platform all night. Not getting there. And, mm. and the, the, the actual experience of travelling by rail is miserable. It's dirty, it's cold, it's always delayed. I mean, yeah. we're talking about these MSLs, which I quite like now. We're talking about these MSLs as though 40% is kind of like almost half the service. Yeah. That probably means running just a couple of trains a day, yeah. you know, to get people... Well, anyone that I know that travels by train tells me that you turn up and it's a bit like the lottery. Yes. And particularly just even just commuter trains okay. coming in from, from south and north of London, that, you know, you turn up at the station, they might have cancelled the train, it might be running. Um, if it is a busy train, it might have been only reduced to half the size, so it's only got four carriages instead of eight, so yeah. you don't get to sit down, you're pressed up against people. I mean, it's horrendous. Sit down. And it's but not it's, cheap either, no, is it? No, but it's OK, because remember, they've got the pillars in London Bridge and mm. places like that painted as rainbows. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so we yeah. know, it's all OK, right? enjoy we know the rail companies are supporting... Polyamory, yeah. demisexuals, LGBTQIA, 
X, Y, Z. My favourite, the aromantics. We talked about that a bit last night. Which is basically somebody who has relationships with people but doesn't really love them. Oh, is that right? Which I call basically just a bastard. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Bad or married. You know, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It is is nonsense. Let's have a look at uh, one of their Aslef blokes, though, because we've got uh, Aslef's executive committee member, Miles Colombini, talking to Talk TV today. See what he says. What we earn as train drivers in the terms of conditions of employment we enjoy should be something that other workers aspire to, not something that other workers are made to feel envious of. A miles a day makes you work less sure. right. I've heard not that quite now sure what his point seven is. times yeah. and I still don't understand <laughs> no. what he's on about. He's, I think he's saying we actually have quite good terms and conditions and other people should want them as so opposed to... So that's why to... we're on strike? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make much sense, It does doesn't it? make much sense. Mars, I, I love the name now. It's got to be good. Work, rest and play. I yeah. Mars, Yes, it's going to be great. Absolutely. I mean, it is extraordinary. Let's talk about the other big story that certainly struck me as a very, very important one today, front page of the Times, immigration to propel the UK population to 70 million by 2026. That's less than two years from now. Yeah, 74 right? million I after wonder that if it's already, yeah. you know, getting up there... Now, because I'm yeah. pretty sure there's a huge population that we don't even know about yeah, that hasn't been counted. People that come into this country and sort of are never really accounted for, yeah. are never really taken um, seriously. And people, I'm sure of it because, of, I, I, you know, I have I spent a lot of time on the South Coast. There's loads of boats that come in that nobody ever sees. Yes, mm. you know, and you quite often will see. I mean, my kids used to tell me quite a lot. They would they would they would come across people living in woods and things, and you'd wonder who they were. And you know, there'd be somehow uh, characters wandering about villages in, sa- in South East. You don't the census or something. Is that how? Sorry, I, I should know, but yeah. how is the population counted? Is it accounted for? I think it is accounted by filling for in those censuses by filling every in census years. forms. Yeah, yeah. So there'll be loads of people who don't bother doing that. Off yeah. grid, yeah. And there'll be lots of families who have come in who maybe have got ten members of the family and yep. accounted for only about five. Yeah. You know, you hear all the time about people sharing driving licenses, people sharing jobs. You know, people tell me they order food on some of these, uh, you know, like Deliveroo, Just Eat type things, and the guy who's supposed to bring it uh, doesn't turn out to be the guy that's bring, that brings it. You know, there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence. The thing that I love about this story is I've been saying this for ages, yeah. and I've been having argument after argument with particularly um, immigration lawyers, you know, who like to help people to stay here, and who've been telling me for the best part of the last two years, oh, you know, all of this scaremongering about the population increasing is rubbish. It's only because of Afghanistan. It's only because of Ukraine. It's only because the numbers have gone up. Absolute rubbish. You know, this is based on 350,000 net migration every year. Yeah. Last year it was 750. Yeah. So, I mean, it's already double that. Oh, and and as you it, say, it's the people you know about. So the ones yeah. in the woods and so on and so forth, mm. the ones who don't check yeah. the boxes on the forms. Right. Uh, so it's probably not we never just go 74. Near forms. Exactly, not just 74, but probably 80. It's not that we don't like people, but the infrastructure of the country already is absolutely creaking at the sea. I mean, busting at, bursting at the sea. Yeah. We know that in terms of education and health. There's no room for anything, is there? Yeah. And if There's... you look at the scale of change, I mean, sure. when we went from 50 to 60 million mm. in terms of population size, that took about 55 years. Yes. And this growth between 60 to 70 has happened in just over 20 years. Yes. Mm. That's an unprecedented amount mm. of change. It's half and, a million and, people a year. Yeah. And also what people have started to notice is that, you know, if you look at it, it's actually the, the net migration figure is a bit of a misleading figure. The real figure is 1.2 million people who came last year from outside of the United Kingdom. Now, if you're going to tell me that, you know, uh, the rest of that number, 600,000 or something, left and went to live elsewhere, the likelihood is that they're British people who are leaving. So you've actually got 1.2 million foreigners coming in, and I'm going to say the word because that's what they are, from foreign countries to live in Britain. And you've got 600,000 people, British people, leaving. Yeah, and Brexit was supposed to sort of get 
control of our borders and, and work out the type of migration yeah. we wanted to have, you know, high-paying high paying taxpayers mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And instead, it's like we've just, post-Brexit, we've just opened the doors to take anyone. And, yeah. and there was a Sunday Times... I, I mean, it's a worldwide about, problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Any country... It is. Yeah. The same we, issue. But we've done all these backdoor things. I mean, the Sunday Times story on, mm. on the weekend about um, universities just basically yeah. handing... Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I've been saying for um, ages. People going, oh, that's not true. No, people come, do the university course, and then they go home. Well, yeah. apparently not. Well, they basically well, go and get a job at Deliveroo or, yeah. or in the care sector and then disappear. And, right. and they're not, you know, they might be using, uh, you know, schools, hospitals, mm. yeah. uh, living in social housing. So all the facilities. Well, we have we're going to talk later on. We'll yeah. come yeah. back to all this because we're going to talk later on about you know um, UK homes for UK people, which apparently is now a controversial idea. Incredible. Um, but guys, thank you very much indeed. Thank we you. will be having you back. We've got loads to talk about coming up. Uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're about to look at whether sanctions on Iran is actually the real answer. As the newly minted Lord Cameron flies off to the Middle East to call for calm, maybe he wants a referendum. Don't move. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Terror on our doorsteps is what intelligence chiefs are warning of tonight as Iran's proxy war in the Middle East comes to Britain. Iranian dissidents living in the UK have been warned by counter-terrorism police over the past fortnight that they're potential targets of assassinations and kidnappings. Joining me now is former British Army officer Colonel Richard Kemp. Colonel, very good evening to you. Welcome to uh, the Independent Republic. We've, we've slightly um, sort of augmented it since you were last here. Uh, so uh, welcome and thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, we've often made the argument here um, on this show and others uh, at Talk TV that uh, it's always a bad idea to kind of import foreign wars and import foreign differences between various different groups in various different countries. We seem to be doing that at a rate of knots now. Uh, we now apparently are faced with the possibility of Iranian dissidents living here, possibly coming under attack or possibly being attacked by officers or, you know, um, members of the Iranian government. Yeah, and that's been the case for a considerable time. When I was working in, um, in the intelligence world myself back in about 2005, it was well known that Iran had uh, terrorist sleeper cells here in the UK as well as elsewhere in Europe with, you know, plans to carry out attacks against both dissidents and terrorist attacks against other UK targets as well. So you're right to be very concerned, but this is nothing, nothing really very new at all. It's been going on for a long time. Yes, but I mean, knowing the area and the region as you do, I mean, clearly the Iranians are kind of ratcheting up the pressure to some extent. I mean, they're denying any involvement um, in some of the more recent attacks, including the drone attack on uh, the American um, uh, base, which killed three soldiers. But, I mean, there's an awful lot of money going out of Iran to fund all sorts of groups in all sorts of places, isn't there? Absolutely. Iran has a, a very extensive terrorist network all around the Middle East and in other countries as well. And they may deny it, but the reality is that uh, Iranian proxies were behind the attack on the Americans in Jordan. They, be, they were behind the attacks, the about 170 or so attacks on US forces in Iraq and Syria since uh, in the last three months. They're behind the attack on Israel on the 7th of October. They're behind the repeated attacks on Israel from Lebanon. That Iran has its hand on a vast terrorist network, which actually has been enhanced by funding released by the United States with British support from frozen assets originally 
held against uh, Iran's nuclear weapons program. But because the US, with again British support, has been so desperately keen to appease uh, the Iranians, um, it, it's actually encouraged them in doing this. And therefore, really, uh, we have no one really but ourselves to blame for the situation we've got. And I also should have mentioned that Iran's hand is right behind the, uh, the Houthis' attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea as well. Yeah. And what do you think has emboldened them over the course of the last few months? Because there was a time when Iran would not have kind of reached out in the way that it seems to be doing. So what's changed? Well, I think, I think they are under pressure. Um, they've been doing this for a long time, but as you say, not perhaps as intensively, but they are under pressure because one of their major uh, proxies, Hamas in Gaza, and, and another proxy, Islamic Jihad in Gaza, is slowly being annihilated by Israel. And that, of course, is a big problem for, for Iran. At the same time, they're seeing uh, the potential for their major proxy, Hezbollah, being attacked by Israel uh, in southern Lebanon if they carry on their aggression against Israel. And they've seen the Western-led, the US-led coalition, which really consists only of the US and Britain, um, attacking their, their proxy, the Houthis, in the Red Sea. So they are. They are under pressure. They've got to show their strength. Um, and they need to be they need to be put firmly back in their boxes, which can be done with the right military action as well as sanctions by the US and, and its allies. Yeah. And we're hearing tonight that Joe Biden has made a decision about retaliation. Obviously, we don't know what it will be. We haven't um, been expecting to, to be told that. But what would you think the options are for the US? Well, I think we, what we've seen is in response to the, as I said, about 170 or so attacks against US forces in Iraq and Syria, we've only really seen small, inadequate um, retaliatory attacks in some cases by America on, on Iranian proxies. We've also seen the ineffectiveness of US and UK attacks on Houthi, their Houthi proxies in the Red Sea. They're, they don't respond to this kind of attack. Iran needs to be attacked itself. It needs to have the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an element of the Iranian state, which is responsible for organising all these proxies. They need to be subject to a significant attack by the US. And that will result in, uh, in Iran drawing its horns in, at least to some extent. Yeah. People say, oh, that is escalation, it leads to World War III. Nothing of the sort. If you recall, when President Trump uh, ordered the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' Quds Force, who was in charge of all this in his day. Um, when that was uh, carried out, the, there were people saying, oh, there's going to be massive retaliation by Iran. What did Iran do? It did nothing. Right. It, it basically drew its horns in and sat back and did virtually nothing in response. I think, you know, there's only one language that Iran understands, and that's the language of force and military strength. If they're not given that, then they will push further and further until they are, and therefore it's long overdue for an attack directly against the IRGC. And are you one of those who believes that the whole business of October the 7th was cooked up by Hamas at the behest of Iran because they wanted to try and screw up the deals that were being done between Israel and Saudi Arabia, um, the Abraham Accords and, and the kind of the newfound cooperation, shall we say, between uh, parts of the UAE and Israel as well? I'm certain that the attacks were planned, trained, equipped, funded and orchestrated by Iran. 
there's, there can be no question about that. The Hamas could not have done this on its own. It had to have um, certainly very significant support from Iran. And, and all you have to do is to look at the action of the Hamas fighters inside Israel on the 7th of October and see how they operated. These were not some ragtag terrorist bunch from Gaza just firing blindly in the air with their AK-47s as they're in their, their habit, they, they have a habit of doing. These were a well-trained, almost military organization communicating with each other, operating as teams. These were trained by professionals and the IRGC and Hezbollah as well, another agent of the IRGC who is involved in training Hamas. They're, they're very effective terrorists and it would have taken that for them to do it. I think the timing of the attack was related to the progress being made in normalization of relationships between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It may also have been connected to uh, Iran's judgment of, um, of, of Israeli weakness. They saw the division in Israeli society around the judicial reforms that had been outfolding for many, many months before that. And also they saw a distancing between the White House and Israel with Joe Biden refusing to invite uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House. And they thought perhaps this is the time now to act with a weak, divided Israel, un un unhelpful progress with Saudi Arabia and um, a US that may not come to the aid of Israel. They, they miscalculated on, on both of those factors for sure. And they also miscalculated on Saudi Arabia because Saudi has been saying recently that they are willing to go ahead with normalization after this conflict is finished. Mm. And as far as um, what's actually happening in Gaza is concerned, I know you've been spending quite a bit of time in Israel with the IDF recently. Um, how much damage has Israel done to Hamas? How much is left to do, I suppose, would be my question. I know Benjamin yeah. Netanyahu told Douglas Murray here on Talk TV yesterday uh, this could take months. But, I mean, realistically, what, what, how, how much damage have they done so far? Yeah, I spent three months in Israel since the start of this war. I left about just over a week ago now. I went into Gaza a few times and I observed the IDF in action on the ground in Gaza, uh, as well as from the air. And um, the, I think the, the reality is that certainly the Israeli defence minister says that uh, it, the IDF have effectively destroyed 50% of Hamas's fighting capability in manpower terms. Mm. And he, he said that they've, they've killed a quarter of Hamas fighters and they've seriously wounded another quarter. And I think those seriously wounded are people who cannot return to battle. So effectively taking out half of Hamas's strength, that is a very, very severe blow to Hamas. Mm. In addition, they've destroyed large numbers of their tunnel infrastructure. They've destroyed vast quantities of munitions. And Hamas is now at the stage where it cannot operate as a unified body. It still has a command structure in certain parts of the Gaza Strip, but it's not able to function as a as a, a, a fully-fledged organisation as it did at the start. So I think um, that needs to continue. It's not, not by, it's far from over. And that destruction needs to continue until maybe a tipping point's reached at which Hamas collapses, even short of uh, the destruction of the whole organisation. Mm. The length of time it might take, I've been, it's been estimated to me by IDF generals that we could be talking about a matter of a few weeks um, before the current intensity of fighting ends, then after that, once fighting has maybe largely dissipated and, and the IDF uh, is focused more on clear, clearing up operations in 
in Gaza, tracking down terrorists that have escaped, destroying tunnels, destroying infrastructure. That could take many more months after that. But I think we, we're likely potentially to see the end of this severe phase of conflict within a, a matter of weeks. What that means, I don't know whether it's two weeks, three weeks, it is hard to say, maybe a bit more. Okay. Colonel Kemp, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Colonel Richard Kemp there, uh, giving us the benefit of his experience in Gaza uh, and with Israel and with exactly what is going on uh, on the ground there. Uh, there'll be much more to talk about, I'm sure, uh, in the coming days. This is the brave and the brilliant independent republic of Mike Graham. Up next, we hear what really happened in the House of Lords last night, straight from the horse's mouth, as the evil plotters WhatsApp group urging Tory rebels to stop messing around as well. Don't even think about moving. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Migrants are dodging deportation by apparently informally swapping rooms with one another in taxpayer-funded hotels as the Home Office can't find the cash to sort the mess out themselves. I'm now joined by former Conservative Minister and Lord Vasey. My Lord Vasey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Mike. It's Very nice to, to see be you. here. Very nice to see you. I mean, it was all a bit of a um, all a bit of a letdown last night in the House of Lords. We were sort of very excited here, hoping that the House of Lords might throw a spanner in the works, and and in the end, uh, they didn't. So it goes back to the House of Commons, and we have to sit through more interminable conversations about a bill that will probably, if it ever does come to pass, not really ever do anything. No, there's plenty of fun and games to come in the House of Lords, Mike. So. Yesterday in the House of Lords, it was the second reading of the bill. So it goes through all its stages in the House of Commons. Then it comes to the House of Lords. The first fight was this motion by the attorney shadow, uh, the former Attorney General for Labour, Lord Goldsworth, who put down this thing saying the treaty can't be ratified until 10 steps have been taken. That was actually passed by the House of Lords, but won't make much difference. Yesterday was the second reading in the House of Lords. The Lib Dems tried to put a spanner in the works by declining to give the bill a second reading, which is very, very rare in the House of Lords. Mm. The House of Lords always gives a bill a second reading, but they tried to stop that. The Lib Dems, some Greens and about eight Labour peers voted for that motion, but all the Tories voted against it, so it was roundly defeated by about three votes to one. But then the fun and game starts. This is where you'll be able to get loads of mileage in, on the programme because there'll be the committee stage and the report stage, both of which allow people to put down amendments and vote for them. And you can be sure as eggs is eggs that there will be amendments that will be supported by the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, who together have a majority in the Lords, which they will pass. Those amendments will then go back to the House of Commons, which will slow the bill down and allow... Uh, it's called ping-pong. Uh, Boris Johnson calls it whiff-waff, but it's called ping-pong. Yeah. So the amendments would go back to the Commons, Commons vote on them, send them back to the Lords... Lords vote on them and so it goes on. It seems to me that it's so you've, almost... got, you've got weeks of this. Weeks yeah. of this. It seems to me that, that, that Rishi Sunak has sort of deliberately filibustered his own bill by making it possible for all of this to happen so that he doesn't really have to enact a bill at all <laughs> before the election. And the election will come and he can just say, well, of course, we would have enacted this bill and we would have stopped the votes if it wasn't for those horrible people in the House of Lords. I'm 100% certain that if uh, Rishi Sunak could wave a magic wand he would want to see some flights take off to Rwanda. No question. That would definitely win him the support of the public. I don't think he's going to get away with if, uh, telling the public before a general election it wasn't my fault, it was the horrible people in the House of Lords. 
Yeah. It just won't wash. He might be right about that, but it just won't wash with the public. The public want to see a result. And if he doesn't get a plane off the ground and into Rwanda with some asylum seekers, they're not going to... They're going to punish him. Yeah, but I think the whole thing is is a busted flush anyway, isn't it? Because even if he was to get uh, some planes taking off, even if he managed to get a couple of hundred people off to Kigali, you know, there'd probably be 500 arriving, coming the other way the very same day because there's no incentive, really, for any of those people traffickers to stop making all the money they're making. It's like asking drug dealers to stop selling drugs. Well, I mean, I thought you were talking about Rwandan asylum seekers because we've taken six... Uh, from Rwanda, of course, <laughs> and there'll be more Home Secretaries have visited Rwanda uh, than we've sent yes. asylum seekers. So, uh, well, that's your that's your view, and it's different from the government view. The government view is that the Rwanda scheme is going to act as a massive deterrent to people crossing the channel in small boats. They could be right about that. It's worked with the Albanians, for example. 100% work with the Albanians. Their, their crossings have dropped by 92%. If it was an efficient system where you were sending, you know, 500 people a day on a flight every single day, no questions asked, I think it probably would act as a deterrent. Yeah, listen, I was very much in support of it, unlike most people on this station, actually, when it first was announced. But it has never been enacted properly and it probably never will be. And that's why I don't think anyone really perceives it now to be a deterrent of any kind, because... There's no real reason to suspect that, as I say, they're going to take, even if they take a few hundred, they won't be taking the 170,000 that were in the backlog, many of whom now appear to have been given asylum status anyway, uh, as some kind of form of, you know, sort of over the Christmas period uh, amnesty, which was kind of snuck in at the last minute. Well, that's right. I mean, Rishi Sunak has over-promised on the boats. He said he would stop the boats. It's become a phrase. Politicians love it when their policies get through to the public and you can stop somebody in the street and say, what's the policy? Lots of people you stop in the street now would say, what is Rishi Sunak's policy? And he'd, mm. they'd say it's stop the boats. But they'd also say it's not working. If he'd been more even-handed about it and said, this is a really big problem, we're going to make a huge impact on it, he could have cited his success with the Albanians, for example, uh, and he could have cited the fact that actually he's got small boat crossings down by something like 40%. It keeps and also, going you could up, have said, you know, it? I've got I've got lots of other policies I want to talk about, but unfortunately, the only policy that's penetrated with the public is stop the boats, and the only thing they see is that Rishi Sunak hasn't stopped the boats, right. even though he has had an impact on the number of crossings. Well, yeah, but it started at a twenty percent uh, reduction, then it became a thirty percent reduction, and I think now they're saying a forty percent reduction. But and nobody really believes the numbers anymore because what we do know, for example, is that last weekend a thousand more people came on the small boat, so it doesn't appear to have been reduced by anything other than the weather, really. But let's talk about um, the plot because I find that far more interesting in a way. Um, do you think that uh, there is such a thing as the plot? Or I mean, you've been in and around um, the Tory party for quite a long time. You came into Parliament, I think, 20, in 2002. Um, is there such a thing as a dark sort of uh, web of Tory MPs and, and Tory backers and Tory you know, grandees who plot this kind of stuff? So normally these things are cock-up more than conspiracy. I think the ousting of Boris Johnson was a, a cock-up. I think things just took off. Uh, it's weird to think now when you think back. The most successful British Tory Prime Minister we've had since Margaret Thatcher uh, was ousted um, on the basis of you probably can't even remember his name. You will, because you, you know your way around <laughs> politics. I suspect a lot of viewers will have forgotten the name of the man who was alleged to have done something naughty at a yeah. club uh, who was made Deputy Chief Whip. 
but that took on a life of its own. I don't think the Tories really planned to get rid of Boris Johnson. Uh, I didn't think there would be a plot to oust Rishi Sunak because I didn't think the Tory party would be that stupid to want to change leader eight months before an election and think it was going to be some kind of magic bullet. But I do, I'm beginning to think maybe there is a plot. Yeah. Maybe, there, maybe there are people who genuinely think Rishi Sunak has bombed enough that it's worth having a new prime minister. And if it is going to be Kemi Badenoch, who appears to be the favourite, uh, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I mean, she would come in and I think she would find exactly the same difficulties Rishi Sunak has. A Tory party that's very, very difficult to manage. Uh, there were five families, you remember. Now apparently we're getting a sixth one with Liz Truss launching popular conservatism yeah. next week. Um, it's an unmanageable party. She won't have much time to kind of uh, have an impact on the electorate. The electorate will just be bemused that the Tories have had yet another leadership election. You have boring people like me on the telly for weeks on end talking about this leadership election while the country's thinking, well, we've got a cost of living crisis and an NHS crisis and a small boats crisis. So, but I do think there are people who, uh, in particular around Kemi Badenoch, do think seriously, they may not think she could be prime minister now, but they certainly think she could be leader shortly after an election if the Tories lose mm. it. But the problem with politicians is that they always want the job, don't they? No matter how awful it is. I mean, Boris Johnson, from an early age, said he wanted to be, what, emperor of the world or king of the world or something like that. Uh, he finally got the job and he sort of screwed it up for himself. You know, he kind of created all of his own problems in the end. Um, and no matter how awful it looks from the outside, there's always somebody who wants it. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. It's an addiction. And uh, if you ask any Tory MP now in the House of Commons... Would you like to be prime minister, but you can only do it for 24 hours? They'd all say yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, listen, I remember when I stood in Bristol East in 1997, already a Labour seat, Bristol East. I knew we, the Tories were going to get massacred. I got up every day thinking I was going to win that seat. Psychology just takes over. Yeah. If, if, if for some amazing reason in the next six weeks, somehow the Tories decide they're going to get rid of uh, Rishi Sunak. The people who stand to become prime minister will genuinely believe if they become prime minister, they're going to turn things around and win the next election. They'll yeah. definitely believe that. But there must be people telling them that, right? Because there will be reasonable people telling them that. Yeah, there'll be people telling Penny more than that. There'll be people telling Kenny Bagnock that. People telling Suella Braverman that. It's interesting, all the strongest candidates who could potentially replace Rishi Sunak if there is going to be this plot are all women, in my yeah. view. I mean, James Cleverly would be a candidate as well. I don't think Jeremy Hunt would. Uh, but it's three women who are probably the most prominent uh, Tories now who would have a chance of uh, becoming leader if, if, as I say, the Tories are balmy enough to do it. As I say, I think it is crazy, but I think I'm beginning to think, and it may just be there are lots of articles about it, but I'm beginning to think there's something going on, that there is a rumbling of discontent. But I'm not sure. I don't think it will reach a tipping point. I really don't think... I think they'll be grumbling, which is unhelpful. It's destabilising. Everyone should be getting behind the Prime Minister if we've got a chance of winning the next election. Uh, but I do think there is more to it than just mm. Westminster froth. Yes, it would appear so. Lord Basie, thank you very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Um, thank you, Mike. on Take earth care. should we make of it all? The plot thickens, as we say. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham and you better stay watching it because next up, I'll take down those hypocritical councils who aren't as green as they seem. And we'll look at whether British social housing should be prioritised for those with what they call connections to the UK. Stay right there.
Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. I've lost count of the number of times I've been told by people on the immigration grift that I've been using dodgy data and the wrong projections and I've been warning everyone about the incredibly increasing population of these small islands over recent years. Lawyers have said that there was nothing to be alarmed about when I quoted Migration Watch figures recently that suggested our nation would increase in size by the equivalent of 15 new Birminghams. Immigration grifters assured me that this was only a recent blip in the numbers because of the people coming here from Hong Kong, from Ukraine and from Afghanistan. They told me that the number of illegal migrants coming here and legal migrants would return to the more normal levels of a few years ago. Last year, we know that 1.2 million people came here legally, largely on work and student visas, and that resulted in a net migration figure of 750,000. Very much an exceptional year, I was told. And when I said that more and more students are overstaying their visas, bringing their families with them and setting up home here, the grifters even denied that. Well, today, everything I ever said has been proved right because the Office for National Statistics, the government's own data collection agency, agrees with me. Today, they announced that the population of Great Britain will jump to a staggering 70 million in 2026. That's just two years away, thanks to the vast numbers of people leaving their home countries and arriving on our shores. And I haven't even started talking about the illegal migrants yet, the ones who come here on small boats every single day, in their hundreds. Previous estimates of future population numbers were based on long-term net migration settling at around 245,000 a year. Still a pretty substantial number. Now they've re-evaluated it and they reckon it will be closer to 315,000 a year. And I think they'll have to revise that up again probably next year. The ONS even admitted that the increase is the equivalent of adding another 12 of the biggest cities outside of London. And since the start of this century, the population of the UK has increased by almost a fifth that's not far off 10 million. Is it any wonder we're running out of space? The roads are jammed, the hospitals are full, our hotels are also full, many of them ironically full of illegal migrants, and there are not enough houses for everyone. Home Secretary James cleverly announced today that the Tories are going to start attempting to get immigration back to what he called sustainable levels. The plan is to limit the number of family members legal immigrants can bring with them when they come, and there's also going to be an increase in the salaries that legal migrants can earn in a bid to stop foreign workers undercutting British ones. It all kicks in in March. But it's too little too late, isn't it? The nation's creaking at the seams, and yet no one seems to know how to reverse the tide. This has all happened under the watch of the Conservatives, and Labour won't be any better. I'm usually happy to be proved right, but not this time, not on your life. Now, let's turn to the hypocrisy of a few of our local governments now. Councils which have made alarmist claims about climate change or boasted about their green credentials are burning through some of the highest amounts of gas and electricity. Southwark, Hackney and Oxfordshire authorities are accused of a do-as-we-say-not-as-we-do attitude. How surprising. Joining me in the studio to natter with me all things to do with these councils, we've got the head of campaigns at the Taxpayers' Alliance, Elliot Keck. Elliot, welcome to, uh, to the Independent Republic. Nice to see Always you. Always happy to complain about councils. <laughs> five well, minutes of you, Mike. Absolutely right. I mean, what we hear all the time now is that councils are desperate for money. Yeah. Uh, they're absolutely rammed up with uh, debt. Some of them are going bankrupt. They're running to bankruptcy court, mostly because of very, very poor administration of their funds, not because they've been, you know, yeah. had their, their funds removed from them. But this is about something different. This is about them spending money on things that they don't want us to spend money on. Yeah, the hypocrisy is pretty astounding, actually. Southwark Council, which is one of the worst and one of the 
councils highlighted in the report in the Times is one of the absolute highest users of gas and electricity and one of the biggest spenders on gas mm. and electricity. This is the same council that between 2019 and 2022 hit drivers with almost £11 million worth of uh, low traffic neighbourhood fines, essentially right. for the crime of driving down a residential street, right. a street that you probably, probably... streets that the people lived on. And, and driving up and down, you would have been driving up and down for years and years mm. and years completely normally and suddenly you're facing a £100 bill for this. So this very, very same council that has been imposing these very, very damaging policies on drivers is actually one of the worst when it comes to their own environmental right. record. And of course they would say that they're doing all of these things in order to get to net zero, right? Because presumably they've got net zero <laughs> policy just in Southwark Council so that yeah. they have everything going yeah, towards getting yeah. net zero. As long as Southwark sorts it out, the world will be saved. Yeah. It's just nonsense. And I think you look at they spent seven, they produced a report on this that uh, went to 73 pages. Mm. People just want their bins to be collected. Yeah. People just want their libraries to be open, yeah. their schools to be run. They don't want these 73 page tomes, these sort of, you know, Tolstoy esque documents on, you know, how to save the world from right. essentially local council officers. Right. It's just nonsense. And how many wheelie bins can they supply yeah. you with, you know, particularly yeah. for people that live on ordinary streets where they haven't really got anywhere to put them? So you've yeah. just got all these bins blown around all over the place. Yeah. They've also done another thing, um, anti car, and I'm going to be talking about Westminster Council a little bit later on actually about this. Um, they've started charging people for parking on a street which up until relatively recently was free to park on. And suddenly you wake up one morning and there's a whole load of sort of parking bays yeah. you put in. And if you don't pay to park there with a residential permit, you get a ticket. We well, have all these schemes, all these things like ULAs, uh, vehicle excise duty, fuel duty that are designed to force people off the roads, designed to force people out of motor vehicles and into electric vehicles. Yeah. And then suddenly you realise you don't have any money because all of those motor vehicles that are bringing in tax revenues suddenly people are moving away from them and right. suddenly you need to start hitting the electric vehicles. So right. I think taxpayers, drivers, you, they cannot win here. But Whenever how you go, the tax man's going to be reaching into yeah. their pocket. And how is it possible that, that Southwark Council is spending so much and Oxford Council are spending so much on their um, sort of heat and, and gas and electricity when so many of them are working from home? Because that's the other thing we hear is that an awful lot of yeah. the offices of local councils are sort of barren and empty because nobody bothers going in. Yeah, a shocking number are uh, empty. We've done, we've produced figures showing that many are only 10, 20% full. In terms of Southwark Council, I'd imagine they would say they have a lot of potentially old Victorian buildings that need to be heated. But that's precisely but the point. But there's people in Yeah, well, people use the energy that they right. need to use. And yet Southwark Council are telling their own residents to stop using mm. the energy that they need to use. So that's where you come back to the hypocrisy point. It's outrageous. It really is. We've got one uh, statement. We've got a few statements, actually. We're going to read one. This was Oxfordshire County Council, what they had to say for themselves about this story. I'm afraid we are not inclined to do this because, quite frankly, this information and the report written on the back of it are both fatally flawed, they say. Uh, they are quite simply wrong and seek to compare apples and pears. Now, that doesn't sound to me like a council that's denying the story. It just says you can't really compare one thing yeah. against another. No, it sounds like a communications officer that knows they're never going to lose their job, but they're happy <laughs> just to insult residents, insult, insult taxpayers and insult the media. I think it's very much indicative of that. Because they don't think they have to answer to anybody, do no, they? absolutely. You know, they, they know they can just raise council tax at the maximum right. every year. And we're told... party is in power is going to do it. And we're told they're going to get permission to do so, aren't they, again? So yeah. having only just recently... Um, uh, added up loads and loads of people's council tax and just, you know, added another sort of 10%, yeah. which is what more or less happened in London. They're going to be able to put another 5% on yeah, in the absolutely. coming year. As an inflation-busting increase. And there was a particularly worrying report that actually that DLUC officials in, in Michael Gove's department, the mm. uh, housing 
department have actually told councils they expect this increase in council tax, yeah. which would be outrageous if it was true. Councils should be allowed to compete with one another to see if they can actually offer better bills than their neighbours. That's how you have councils like Harlow and Central Bedfordshire, which did, to their credit, freeze council tax last right. year. And when you look at some of the things that the spending is going on, nearly a million pounds on internet bills uh, for working from home staff, Islington mm. Council spending £130,000 on tea bags and biscuits, yeah. Wales uh, Council spending 25000 per individual on high-tech bins that tell you when they're full. Yeah, and the cherry huh? on top of the cake, £350,000 spent attending award ceremonies to celebrate their own, well, what they claim to be success, which we uncovered last year. It's amazing. Absolutely astonishing. Elliot, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, there's no end to the amount of wastage that these councils can come up with. It is absolutely dreadful. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I've got yet another hour of dictatorship for you next. More proving myself right. Baroness Bra, Michelle Moan's husband, is facing the heat in Spain. And by heat, I mean a tax evasion scam case. And all's not well at Archie Well. Find out why next. We'll see you on the other side. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, MPs warn how the music industry is still a boys club where sexual harassment and abuse are rife due to a culture of silence. We'll speak to a singer about her experience. Plus, Harry and Meghan's TV careers take another hit after their production company chief quits. And the moon is shrinking. Scientists say the groundbreaking research into its diminishing size could cause severe moonquakes and lunar cliffs. 
It's been another week of contrast for the police in this country. Last night, I described how lawless Britain is becoming more and more dangerous with every passing day of 2024. I told you of the violence at an FA Cup match when football fans started beating the hell out of one another. There were public brawls everywhere from Bournemouth to Oldham and even on the London Tube. This morning, just before dawn, armed police entered a house in south-east London and shot dead a crossbow-wielding man who had forced his way into a family home. The man appears to have planned an attack on the people inside the three-bedroom house and police on the scene found a Kevlar vest, a gas mask and several other weapons, including a sword. It was a stark example of the dangers individual police officers have to face. Before the armed squad arrived and the potential for danger was eradicated, the man had threatened the first team of police who had turned up unarmed. Looking at some of the crossbows currently available to buy online, it's clear the situation could very quickly have got out of control and many people could have been harmed. Incredibly, the police officer who discharged his gun will now face an investigation and will probably be relieved of his duties for quite a considerable period of time. And this comes as the police prepare to reveal the identity of another officer involved in a fatal shooting of a suspect. Now, all of which makes it even more improbable to discover that the Metropolitan Police are actually hiring volunteers to walk around in uniform, acting as genuine police officers and interacting with the public, sometimes to the detriment of the situation. This weekend, one of the more bizarre happenings involving police in the capital took place on Oxford Street when volunteer officer Maya Hadzipetkova harangued a woman playing an electric piano and singing gospel music in public, threatening to take her equipment off her and telling her she wasn't allowed to sing religious songs in public. Incredibly, in a scene that took over 40 minutes, Harmony London was subjected to all manner of threats and stopped from performing altogether. The officer told us she needed permission from a church to sing outside in public, outside church grounds. And in a further bizarre moment, she then stuck her tongue out at Harmony and laughed at her before walking off. Harmony quoted Article 9 of the Human Rights Act, which protects freedom of thought, belief and religion, all rights that she is perfectly entitled to use for protection against overzealous police officers. Scotland Yard is now investigating how this could have happened. But what is really extraordinary is that they don't appear to have done much checking into Miss Hatsipetkova's past. She's originally from Bulgaria and moved here via a short time in Cyprus. She actually works for Costa Coffee, but she's also worked at All Bar One and the Black Lion Pub in London. She doesn't appear to have any background in law enforcement and as a volunteer police officer, she's able to respond to 999 calls, foot and vehicle patrols, tackling antisocial behaviour, road safety initiatives... And she can even do house-to-house -house inquiries. She's got a good deal of responsibility when she wears that uniform, but she obviously doesn't know the law. It's completely bonkers. And as usual, her superiors are only looking into it. What they should be doing is firing her. Well, the misogyny in music parliamentary report has exposed the scale of sexism in the music industry, with it being described as a boys' club where sexual harassment and abuse are rife. A series of female musicians and DJs, including Annie McManus, Rebecca Ferguson and Katie Weisel, gave evidence to the committee about things they had experienced and witnessed. Well, musician and campaigner Katie Weisel, who gave evidence to the inquiry, joins me now as the assistant showbiz editor at The Sun on Sunday. Hannah Hope, very good evening to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Katie, I saw you on Vanessa's show a bit earlier um, and uh, hopefully uh, you've, you've managed to bulletproof your uh, your room there from your from your child but listen um thanks so much for joining us i mean this is an incredibly um sort of shocking report i think i mean i think most people probably thought that the music business 
particularly the rock business perhaps was inhabited by a lot of bands and uh, followed around by a lot of groupies. But I mean, your stories of your own experiences are, are pretty hellish. I mean, it must have been quite a decision for you to make, to say these things to this committee. Um, right, well, the, I'm not in the industry anymore. And this is, a, um, a, a, I guess, a commonality that, that keeps popping up is, is that understandably it's scary to speak up and out as it is, um, but um, predominantly for those that are still in the industry, there there is this um, underlying fear that um, you know one would either lose their job or um, you know their future in music would be over. So um, you know, I, I always I. I'm one to believe that there is a blessing in in everything, and that I'm not in music anymore per se. Um, I, I'm I'm coming at this really from like a um, you know nothing to lose, everything to gain. Mm. Please let me help everybody else as well that has um, either historically experienced um, you know such atrocities um, and, and prevent it from happening in the future. Um, and do, do you think it's still as bad as it was? when you experienced what you experienced? Uh, absolutely. I think that it also, um, it gets worse. And for two reasons. Um, one being is that it, this seems to be um, a systemic cyclical pattern of behavior in the industry dating from way back when. And, and up until this point, there had been conversations about, uh, you know, change from those in government or investigations, but really up until now, uh, you know, I'm absolutely um, blown away and, and um, immensely uh, proud that the Women and Equalities Committee of, of Openness Inquiry, but I think it's getting worse, what with social media, um, uh, the forms of digital um, abuse and manipulation, there's also other ways uh, that have allegedly um, been found to cover this type of abuse arm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think unless it's actually really just squashed, um, it would just, there's a potentiality for it to continue to spiral out. Right. Hannah, let me uh, ask you the next question. This report was put together by the Parliamentary Women and Equalities Committee. Um, I mean, you've been working in and, out and around show business for, for quite a few years. I'm not going to call you a veteran that wouldn't be right but I mean um what sense do you get about what goes on the things that maybe you don't see the things that that go on behind the scenes and the cover-ups that go on behind the scenes well, people like Katie and Rebecca Ferguson have all been incredibly brave by speaking out, but sadly they are still very much in the minority. There does seem to be a culture of fear within the music industry in that a lot of the women and victims, which is what they are, of sexual assault, abuse, harassment, are really too scared to speak out because they're worried that if they do, they'll jeopardise their record deal or their chance of success and fame uh, and it's really sad actually that the use of NDAs non-disclosure agreements and contracts is still rife uh, to essentially silence these victims uh, and, and stopping them from speaking out so quite often uh, if they do have an issue they are given a payoff but they're not allowed to speak out about the situation and uh, the committee actually advises that these NDAs are not used in this nature at all going forward because essentially it's stopping any change 
Another thing that was really interesting in this report is that uh, the, it re revealed that a lot of these abusers are sitting amongst the artists at award shows, even in this day and age. And that really is quite shocking, yeah. given that on Sunday we have the Grammys, the biggest American music award show uh, in LA. And then next month, uh, a month away, we've got the Brit Awards, uh, which is the best of the artists in the UK and around the world. Right. And, I mean, let me come back to you uh, as well, Katie, because presumably you don't miss that world. I mean, do you think that you might have stayed in it longer if, it, if, if things hadn't been the way they were? Um, yes, but I, I can't uh, look back. I can only but look forward. And given the, uh, the nature of... Um, of what victims go through and, you know, my... my me myself have been through um, as a victim of sexual assault, um, abuse, harassment. Um, it, it's and then to furthermore, you, you know, watch my abuser um, continue to work in the industry um, is it, just it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying not only because there is no sense of justice. Um, for what I experienced, but more so the fact that this person is still out there and capable of doing it to others. Um, and so alongside um, this report, I've, I've been very much um, uh, campaigning for uh, change for the uh, College of Police Code of Ethics. Mm. Um, so when victims, um, you know, are reporting, um, you know, these horrible offences that have happened, that they are dealt with with uh, impartiality and, and investigated as a criminal offence um, and, you know, not allowed to be um, manipulated furthermore by, by the industry and or the system so that they can just uh, pay out, silence somebody and, and hide us under the carpet. So I've really been, uh, you know, openly and publicly um, campaigning for for reform for that for, for significant change yes well let me ask you again hannah i mean this sounds to me like the beginning of something rather than the end of something doesn't it i mean it's a report uh, which has got quite widespread um uh, sort of um, pr publicity today and will have i'm sure for for the next few days but i mean do you see this as becoming something like the me too movement in america where yeah. you know it started with sort of harvey weinstein and, and went from there I think it's going to be a much slower, um, more gradual change than the Me Too movement because there are less victims coming forward uh, and less um, sort of culprits that we can really point our fingers at other than just taking the suggestions on board that they make in the report. One of the big issues is there's a lot of freelancers working in music so they don't have the same kind of protection than if you were an employee of a company. There's also a very informal nature to working in music lots of uh, performances are done in nightclubs around alcohol and yeah. drugs and there's also uh, the informal nature of recording studios so it's more difficult to safeguard those uh, work settings uh, and also there's a lot of men in charge at the top and I think that Caroline Noakes was suggesting that really if they want change they need to uh, input more equality from the top and then hopefully it will uh, trickle down so I imagine some of these big record labels will be looking at making some female hires uh, going forward just to have a little bit more equality.
Well, you think they might want to avoid any kind of lawsuits and paying out loads and loads of money to people as well, which they might not like yeah, to there do. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that would be the way to get them, I suppose. This is great to talk to you, Katie. Thank you very much indeed. Hannah, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. See you both you. again soon. Uh, coming up next, Harry and Meghan's TV career uh, in the US has been dealt another blow uh, after their production company chief actually quit. Bennett Levine, manager of the Sussex's Archie Well Productions, left the company this month a sign that all is not well in the sunny hills of California. So, uh, with the moaners from Montecito losing their £18 million Spotify deal, rumours that their Netflix deal is about to be pulled, is their empire actually crumbling? Is there anything left of it? Joining me now from the US is host of the To Die For daily podcast and Talk TV's favourite, Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, how are you? I'm good. I... I like I, I've been just sitting here. I can't wait to tell you what I what I've come up with here, Mike. Oh, I feel like Harry and Meghan have gone out and really pursued some talented individuals, specifically with Bennett. This guy came from Sony. Mm. Um, Sony is going to have a production team that is disciplined. They're going to have a template. You know, they're going to they're really going to know because of thousands of dollars in research and audience research and in studies, what's going to pop. Um, you know, so Harry and Meghan go out and hire these people that are talented because they've worked at these other big production companies, but Harry and Meghan don't like to play by the rules. They don't like anyone else's rules. They want to make their own rules. And I think that that must be very frustrating for people like Bennett that have made names for themselves through hard work, through legitimate talent. When Harry gets to be the boss, but he is a Nepo baby and Meghan is, was an actress on Suits, but really she is in the position she's in because of who she married. Mm. And I wonder if that's why we've seen nearly 20 people that have worked underneath them since they were married leave. Mm. You know, that uh, when it comes to Archwell specifically, um, they've lost at least five employees in a little over a year. And that is a reflection of, of leadership. Well, that was very much the kind of the first clue, wasn't it, that something was not quite right when they were both still at Kensington Palace, when word started to come out that she didn't really keep people working for her for very long and lots of people started leaving. And suddenly um, this picture was kind of created without anybody needing to say anything that, you know, if you went to work for Meghan Markle, there's a pretty good chance that you wouldn't be there for very long, either because she didn't like you or you couldn't get on with her. And this is not just you and I having a go at Meghan Markle. This, you know, um, this behavior is documented in multiple books that went through legal and nobody's been sued for it. That Tom Bauer has written about Meghan's, uh, you know, the way she has treated employees. Um, uh, Tom Quinn has written about it too, Valentine Lowe. They've all written books that discussed how Harry and Meghan treated the people that worked beneath them. Uh, it's early morning emails, unrealistic expectations, right. coming up with a huge wild plan that really is not doable and, and demanding that somebody figure out how to execute it. Uh, it's just not being nice. See, I think right. it was Valentine Lowe's book, Courtiers, that discussed Megan walking up to somebody and saying, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be your boss one day too. Uh, so I, I think that 
Um, Harry and Meghan, again, I think it's unrealistic expectations. I think it's them not wanting to play by the rules, not listening to other people that started in the mailroom and worked yeah. their way up in places right. like Sony and, and really know what they're talking about, not giving them the ear and saying, I'm going to let you have the floor and I'm going to let you figure this out. Uh, we saw multiple people, we saw multiple producers when it came to Harry and Meghan's Netflix series, the one that did you know, have a little bit of success, the docu-series. They went through multiple producers there because they didn't get along with, with the first team. So, um, you know, I think that it is a reflection of leadership and, and we're looking at Megan on the red carpet with the Paramount CEO. We're seeing Megan and Harry both kind of hang around Jeff Bezos, who has Prime Video and Audible, which are two places that Harry and Megan would, would likely like to find a home. And I think that they must be sitting back going, do you guys get along with anybody? Yeah. You, know, you don't get along with your family. You don't get along with your employees. Do you get along with anyone? Yeah. Or is, is there going to be a, a return on investment if I, if I invest in you? Or are you going to be difficult for us? Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? Because after what they said at Netflix and what Spotify people said, if you're thinking of hiring them, you're not going to pay them top dollar as they got from Netflix and Spotify because you're going to go, well, you only did one podcast. Um, and when you were asked uh, who you'd like us to try and set up an interview with, you said the Pope. And you're kind of going, <laughs> well, sorry, that's not really how it works. You know, if we're going to pay you millions and millions of dollars, you've got to come up with some stuff. Well, and Donald Trump, and what I couldn't believe about Trump was that it's just delusion. You know, Harry, when he accidentally took that call from that YouTuber, that YouTube yeah. prankster, and he thought he was on the phone with Greta Thunberg, right. he ripped into Donald Trump. So why on earth do you think Donald Trump's going to take an hour or two out of his day to sit down and podcast with right. you? It's absolute delusion. There, you know, from what we have seen reported in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, they're not necessarily creative individuals. They're just taking other ideas and kind of manipulating them a little bit, yeah. like Emily in Paris, but with a guy. Yeah. And um, I think that they they might need to reassess how they treat people. Yeah, I think so. Meanwhile, uh, more trouble for, for Harry in Africa uh, as that kind of um, uh, charitable organisation comes under scrutiny, not because he's done anything wrong, but because he's still associated with it. There's a lot of calls for him to step down from this African Parks organisation, uh, on which I think he's now on the board, but we haven't really heard much from him. Well, he did. they did respond to the Mail on Sunday's investigation, saying that once Harry was made aware of those allegations, he told the appropriate people to, you know, I honestly, it kind of, that statement kind of felt like he was washing his hands of it. Yeah. I told the people that could make a difference and that's all I could do. Um, you know, I, I do think that this is a blessing and a curse to have his name associated with it because th this will be rectified because it ended up on, on the front page of a newspaper because of his association. However, it doesn't reflect well on him because he stood up and, and accepted an award as a living legend from yeah. the aviation show. Right. And one of the, one of the reasons that they said he was a living legend, one of the reasons they said they were honoring him was this specific charity. And so if that's the case, if you're going to accept awards based on your association with this charity, you sure as heck better hope that they don't have skeletons like this in the closet. Mm. And the fact that he was allegedly made aware of, of these allegations in May 
and they and nothing has changed since then. I I think is a, again, I hate to repeat myself, but a poor reflection of leadership. Yes, absolutely right. Finally, just a little word on uh, on Kate, Princess of Wales, who's recovering uh, from the operation. She came home this week, um, as did the King, although he was in for a bit longer um, than we all thought he was going to be. Well, well, here's what I'll say, because I want to be very careful about this, because I want to respect the Princess of Wales. I'm very excited that pr the Prince of Wales is going to have Catherine all to himself on Valentine's Day. I think that's something for them to look forward to. Yes. Um, we have seen the king, and I think he's going to go out of his way to make himself very visible, uh, not to distract from Catherine, but to distract from Ka I think he's trying to protect her mm. from any sort of speculation. And I really love that. And I appreciate that. We know he adores her. And so all, you know, it seems like all is well. I can't wait to see her again. And I'm wishing her all the best. Um, but, you know, Americans... Catherine is our number one royal. She is, you know, analytically the most popular royal. So obviously um, she's in our thoughts and prayers and we absolutely adore her and can't wait to see her back, back on the engagement route. Yeah. Yes, I think so say all of us. Kinsey, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield reporting in uh, to us from uh, the West Coast, the Los Angeles part of the United States of America. Now, it's thunder and lightning here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Next up, Germany experiments with a four-day week at full pay. Meanwhile, up above, the moon is apparently shrinking. Mein Gott, stay alert. Stay there. Now for one of the stupidest pieces of news I've ever seen. That is, after millions of pounds of research, scientists have discovered the moon is apparently shrinking. Yes, that white ball that has been in the sky since the building of the pyramids, the birth of Jesus, the sacking of Rome and the War of the Roses is apparently getting smaller. By how much, I hear you ask, has it really shrunk in size since you first saw it as a child? Well, no, it's shrunk about 45 metres in 100 million years. So it's not actually shrinking at all. It's all completely natural. Don't worry, you don't need to put on a mask, you don't need to buy emergency supplies of rice and toilet paper. This is not another shock development of the so-called climate crisis. The tides will still come in tomorrow and they will continue doing so whilst there are people walking on this earth. So there. My panel's back with me. Delighted to be joined by Ben Lazarus Everwolf and Andrew Eborn. Climate back. change. Have you Climate noticed, change. Have you noticed the moon? Meters. Climate change. You know, as you get older, the policemen get younger. I mean, do you yes. get older and you think the moon's getting smaller? <laughs> I mean, I looked at it the other night and it was pretty full and I think yeah. it was a wolf moon, funnily enough, I was, was. told. Hey. Um, uh, so there's a plug for you. And um, uh, somebody said, yeah, but there's a little tiny, tiny bit missing over on the, the sort of left bottom left-hand side, which I couldn't see. Little corner of cheese is what so Something like that, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we've sent so many people up to the moon um, in various different guises, and now they're telling us it's shrinking and there's moonquakes happening. So well, They're probably taking bits off. That's the problem, you see. They, 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 yeah. they're, they're souvenirs as they come so back. So if you were hoping, I know you're a futurist, if yes. you were hoping to go and live on the moon, it sounds a bit dangerous. It's a bit small, though, isn't it? I think it was 45 metres is lost. Like, where will I fit? You know, well, a bit of a nightmare. Well, it is. But, I mean, you know, I, they may have to just abandon all of this work they're doing up there. Because, I mean, the, the plan would be, would there not, to be some kind of colony on there? I think, I think eventually they want to colonise Mars. I think that's, that's See, the long-term objective. See, Mars is more difficult. Too far away and also very, very, very um, Quite dusty, bad weather. Quite hot. And he yeah. gets terrible interviews talking about the strikes, doesn't he, on Mars? So you're, you're, working you're still talking about it, yeah. You were very impressed with that name, I've never you? understood why, when we've messed up this Earth yeah. so badly, we want yes. to go and do the same on the Moon, on Mars. Can't because we, just we have leave? to. 
things be? I mean, that's the show, whole show, isn't it? You know, who would you take with you and who would you leave behind? You send up to there. start a new civilization. You wouldn't take Michelle Moan, would you? No. Oh, Mr. Michelle Moan. Now, here's a new development in their case, because she's been still... I mean, even this week, she's still been having a go at all sorts of people for sort of victimising her and, you know, mm. saying that they're all talking absolutely nuts of rubbish. He turned up in Spain today um, because apparently he's being um, investigated as part of some um, fraudulent tax scam. I mean, imagine my surprise when I thought, well, she hasn't mentioned this before. Has he been buying dodgy property on the... Cost well, we're not quite sure, but apparently, yeah. yeah, apparently it's a it's a it's a tax case, and the, the Spanish are quite hot on these things. They take a lot of footballers to court for tax, yes. don't they, uh, for unpaid tax? And they've discovered that he's been a part of some kind of tax scam. Mm -hmm. It's not clear precisely what they're accusing him of doing, but she wasn't with him today, and he was standing there in court, you know, having to answer questions about what he'd done. That seems a bit unfair. He's been by her side throughout thick and thin. Yes, trials well, and tribulations. She'll probably say that she didn't want to attract attention to him, so she was hoping that nobody would notice it was him. Yes, that's a very fair or something like I, that. I, I absolutely will stand up. I think uh, it should be a new feature. You know, world of woke. Yes. And yes. The world according to Mike Graham and all yeah. of that. I think the moan update or the yeah. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of it. You, you can know. come up with a better title, but something like that as yeah. a regular weekly feature would yeah. be quite important. Okay. The meaning of moan. Absolutely. Mm. No, I love it. It's, it's got to be good. It is good, isn't it? Absolutely right. Now, we've got plenty to talk about. We've got some other bits of the papers to get through as well. But shall we kick off with a four-day working week in oh. Germany? Isn't that good? You know, we were always called the sick man of Europe because yes. we didn't work as hard as everybody else. But the Germans, I think, actually have quite well... Um, sort of documented days off and they have yeah. lots of... It's, uh, it's about 21 days they take off. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so they don't actually the work that hard already, well, do well, they? Well, what they're saying is about productivity. Now, mm. if they're right, and I, I actually believe this, if you can do your whole day's work in one hour, you pay for results. I think that's great. They're saying you could be just as productive doing four days as you are doing five. And they think that people don't get as sick and so on and so forth. There are certain jobs that it wouldn't work for, obviously. Yeah, uh, yeah but you know what that present. tells me, though? If you can do all of your work in four days yes. instead of five, then you haven't got enough to do. Exactly. Right. Because if you're supposed to work a five-day week, then you don't need to, effectively. And, I mean, people who work from home always say this, don't they? Oh, I'm much more efficient when I work from home. Well, how do I know? Yes. You know, I've only got your word for it. You're you basically say, you say, doing all your work yeah. in two hours and then, you and, know, yeah. taking them... And all the people who advocate for this four-day week always say, oh, it's a far more efficient... Because they would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. And the, the, I guess the question is, is that even if, say, their hourly productivity goes up, the actual loss of hours within the week by yeah. working one day might be outweigh, right. you know, might still outweigh that. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there so. are certain things about people not being at work yeah. which are infuriating. I mean, years ago when I used to be in newspapers, um, I had a, a secretary who went off and had a baby, and when she came back, she didn't want to work full time, so they split the job, and they had so I had basically two secretaries, one that did two and a half days, and the other one did the other two and a half days. Right. And it was a nightmare, because every time I'd ask one of them something, they never knew the answer, because it was the other one that had done it. Yeah. And I could never remember which one of them had done it. So it was massive holes in the whole organisation all the time. But this whole balance, work-life balancing, yeah. do you think there's an argument to be to be made for just having, going back to the day of rest, so having a day yeah. when there's nothing, when you're not allowed to yeah. say, yeah, I'll go in and do that show, or, or anything. Yeah. No shops open, no, no churches, no mosques, no... Mm. Nothing at all. Everybody has to do nothing. Which one day, day would you propose that? Just it could be a Sunday, it could be a Saturday. Just but one day in a week when we, we can't. But it would not have to be. Would it have to be the same day for everyone though, wouldn't it? If you're going yeah, to close day, shops. No, one day when everybody does nothing. Yeah. And the Sunday trading laws are or really irritating. Or what would happen if you got really sick? Yeah. You couldn't go to hospital. 
Yeah. But no, that, it is difficult doing that sort of stuff. But also, you've got to work out what they're going to do with all this extra time. So if they're right. going to spend it, if they're going to put the money back into the economy. Mm. What I think is going to happen is if you do that, the reality is, Goldman Sachs said, as a result of AI, my baby project all the time, yeah. 300 million jobs can lost. We're going to. I wouldn't more... believe a word Goldman Sachs say, by the way. <laughs> I mean, these are the same people that or said you. Greece qualified for the European or Union. Or him, he's yeah. a futurologist. Yeah, I, I wouldn't believe you. a word. Yeah. I've got says. an ology, you know, say more yeah. than Lippmann would tell you. Uh, but that's you the can reality. Get a doctor to see to that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. But that's the reality. They're going to have more leisure time as a result anyway. So we are going to be more efficient. What you need to look is the, the net, in the same way as net. Yeah, but a lot of people aren't good for anything else apart Not from leisure. They're just well. staring at their phones. Right. No one has leisure. I mean, an awful lot of people have not actually got the imagination or the time talent to do anything other than work. Yeah. So and that's if, the problem. if you give them loads of free time, they're just going to waste it. They need a purpose in life. And what, what people prove is when people retire, they, mortality obviously is, is significantly increased because they're not doing anything. Yeah. People who keep on yeah. working have yeah. a purpose in that's life. That's the thing. Will live longer. And also, if you don't really have any discipline in your life, yes. and you get that discipline from going to work and getting what used yep. to be the case that you'd actually get up in the morning, you get dressed, you'd go out, you'd yeah. get on a train or something or a bus. Train? You'd go to <laughs> work. <laughs> if it wasn't on strike. Good luck with that. You know, and then you would do some yeah. work and then yes. you would finish your work and you would come home. Now, I think part of the problem in this country is that since COVID, an awful lot of people are no longer doing any, any of that. Yeah. So they've completely well, look at lost the, look at the their drive. In, yeah, in, in kind of mental illness yeah. and all yeah. of that, depression, anxiety, right. loneliness, all of that is really Because when you sit around for long enough, lack it's not good for you. No, no, it's, it's very bad. For you. And that's the real problem. We are going to get more leisure time, but we don't know what to do with it. Right. And that's what you do need to have a purpose in life. And I think what people have realised about the inefficiencies they used to have, lockdowns that realised, hang on, your train journey took mm. an hour to get in and an hour mm. to get home in the, in the evening. Right. You could be more efficient in that time. But I do believe, going back to the point you made at the very beginning of this excellent show, about productivity. Mm. So all these big bosses and so on and so forth, it is about productivity. That's how bonuses should tie in. Yeah. If you are productive in your one hour and effective, I think that should be okay. And I don't think you have to work the rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it also depends on the type of job you're doing. Yes, different you know, types of jobs. Because, I mean, you know, for example, if we go back to the trained, uh, train drivers, they've got amazing sort of um, paying conditions that, that they obviously don't want to uh, mess up. One of them is that if they drive a train sort of from, say, London to Scotland, yeah. they don't actually drive it all the way to Scotland. They have to stop because they have to have a break, because right. otherwise, you know, it's against the rules. So quite often they'll stop at somewhere like Leeds, yes. and they'll get off the train, somebody else gets on, drives it the rest of the way, they wait for the train to come back, um, and that's their next sort of shift on, if you like. And then they get back to London, and that's the end of the day. That's, that, that's, that's all go. they've done. We, we were You've talking literally about... driven to Leeds and back, that's it. And we were talking about um, And they're not driving. No. Just sit there and press a button. Right. That's what you do, don't you? And you honk no. the horn occasionally. That's, I'd do that job. Um, train drivers and tube drivers take many more sick days on right. average than the, the, sort of the rest of the working population. Yes. Is that right? They, yeah. They, they would say they're more Because stressed. they can. Yes. They're stressed because they're, they're stressed. dealing with members of the public. Absolutely. Aggressive members of the public yeah. asking them questions. I mean, they do say occasionally like, somebody jumps in front of the train, which I'm yes. sure is not a very pleasant thing to have to witness. But, you know, it doesn't happen every day. Um, and, you know, you might as well say the same thing about driving a lorry. You know, somebody might, you know, you might run somebody over while yeah. you're driving a lorry. Yeah. You know, it's not like people throwing themselves in front of trains every day. So I'm not really buying that. But, yeah, I just think, you know, what about if, if Sadiq Khan cares so much about people's health and clean air, how does he allow all these people to go into the tube and drive tube trains all day without actually offering them some kind of compensation or at least a mask to wear? Good question. Um... I, I, I got an email actually this week from, from my council in London, Westminster, that uh, parking charges are going to go up as, as part of a green yes. policy. Yeah, for we're going to be talking about that in a bit. Um, so, yes, it Khan supposedly cares very much about uh, clean air in London and. Oh, he does? You, you les, and, and now Westminster are going to charge me 
a couple of hundred pounds more to park my yeah, car. Yeah, because that will save the planet. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. it seems well, to be a very good exercise. As the only green person here, I was not, and I don't mean green, as in a... You're not some kind of eco-zealot, are you? No, no. <laughs> but I was cycling behind a bus today yes. in the middle of London, and I cannot even... And, and Mike, even you would have objected. The amount of black smoke pouring out of this bus really? was absolutely was appalling. I mean, it was no, no people. <laughs> the electric one. Yeah, the electric one. The electric no, one. it was it was really criminal. Whether you're green or not, whether you're on a bus no, or not. Got rid of them. Yes. And I had a three-year-old on the back. Yeah. And it was absolutely disgusting. But I thought they got rid of all those, haven't they? But there are still buses, and there are still the occasional kind of like what you know vans or whatever. Yeah. You see them, and you and can't believe filthy. it's even legal. Right. No, and right. I mean that really, just black smoke uh -huh. pouring out. I thought. I actually thought the bus was on fire. Why isn't Sadiq Khan making that kind of thing it. illegal? And it, and yeah. It's not safe to cycle in London anyway, is it? I mean, that you get so, not just the pollution, but cars and so oh, on. Oh, so the aggressiveness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I, just I, wouldn't. I, I wouldn't do it. It is scary. It is scary. I bet it's very I'll scary. delegate you to be my, my, my bicycle person. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, okay. you do it on my behalf. But no, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, whenever, you know, I've, you know, when you sit in the car and you can, you can turn the... Um, you know, the external intake off. Yeah, so you, right. if you're going through a tunnel or something, you're just you're circulating your own air. Right. But sometimes you can sit behind a car that's obviously quite an old car, right. and it stinks, yeah. you know. But new cars, of course, don't, and that's the thing that annoys me the most, because if you've got a relatively new car, which is two or three years old, it's pretty clean, you know, yeah. uh, even if it's a diesel, yeah. you know. But, but they're determined to just... I was reading a thing today about Regent Street. They're going to pedestrianise Regent that's Street right, to that. make it into some kind of, you know, European paradise. Yes. Well, I want a bloody European paradise. <laughs> this is London. Yeah. So if I want to go and walk around, you know, the Eiffel Tower and have a look at how nice it is because there aren't any cars there, yes. great. But Regent Street is a road. Mm. It's got buses on it. It's got cars on it. It's, and you know, every time they pedestrianise an area, it never, you know, it's never this sort of um, European idyll that they yeah. would imagine with street cafes. Yeah. Things. It's just kind of... But they've been well, introducing it. I mean, all that will happen is you won't get run over by anybody when you're running away from the knife mob that's trying exactly. to stab you to death while you've gone shopping at the Apple Store. You won't be able store. to find a taxi or anything. Yeah. You'll be oh, God, no. Well, there won't be any taxis because it's Cause... pedestrian only. Yes. Um, and once you shut off one sort of major vessel in London, all you do is create congestion and traffic exactly. and... and yeah. another road. I know. Um, Have you seen this story talking about uh, exercise? Marathon runner carrying a fridge was mistaken for a burglar <laughs> in Stevenage was stopped and questioned by the police. Extraordinary picture. Do you remember that, com that comedian? Yes. The best stories. Yeah. Do you remember Two that... things I'll never do. Run a marathon and right. carry a fridge. Yes. Do you remember there was a comedian, wasn't there, who did a whole sort of series of, of, of shows based on the fact that he was carrying a fridge around Ireland, I think it was. Oh, oh yeah. You remember? A good I mean, friend was... of mine, Tony Hawks. Tony, was yeah, it Tony? Yeah. yeah, he was... Yeah, but he kind of dragged it. He pulled... Yeah, it he, was his funny, though. career actually was round Ireland with a fridge. Right. And then he did, you know, beating the Moldovans at tennis. And he right. took on the entire Moldovan tennis team and vowed to beat them. He did lots of funny things like that. But with the fridge, he had all these adventures right. because he was just walking around Ireland, yeah. dragging it on a little shopping trolley. Yeah. I once went on a golfing trip to Ireland and we picked up a pianist on the way. We went, um, we went to this bar one night and this guy was tinkering around the piano and there was, there was a you know, usual golfing trip with about 25, 30 people. And uh, this, we had so much fun with this guy. He said, we're, we're going to Killarney and around sort of the south part of the island. Did you fancy coming? He went, oh, yeah, sure. So we just paid him to come with us. <laughs> so everywhere we went, we had this pianist and it's oh, great. And he played music as you went? Well, yeah, because every, you paid every him. Pub. You had like a private yeah, yeah. musician with yeah, yeah. you. Oh, brilliant. So, right, the kind of thing that Henry VIII would it have had. It was brilliant. Oh, I love and it. And so like every pub, because all the Irish pubs have got pianos. Yes. So everywhere we went, this guy would just turn up and start playing oh, the piano. How brilliant is that? It was amazing. Should bring him on to do the theme tune for, for the show. You could, absolutely. So anyway, this guy, I don't know why he was 
carrying a fridge. He was training for a marathon. It was apparently really good to build his strength yeah. in carrying a fridge. Why a fridge? Well, I know it's rubbish. Isn't it? So it's, it's, unwieldy. It's, it's, I mean, yeah. really. But I think he kept his beers in the back as he, he sort of sit down, and then you can take one for the road. I yeah. Think. I never understand people that run marathons dressed up in no. like, as a pillow box, as a, as a post box, oh. or whatever. You That's think. A... You're going to run 26.2 miles and you're going to be dressed yes, like that. Yes, I, I know. Yeah. I'm not a fan of marathons, I must admit. No. Partly because they close off so many bits they of do. London when they have a marathon. <laughs> and again, I can't drive around on the streets when I paid to do so. Um, what about Guinness? We're talking about Ireland. Yes. Apparently Guinness is now surging. I'm sure this is just a, a, a PR stuff. Of course stunt. it is. 24% you know, up. Whilst got, all the other they're saying that down. young women Absolutely. are now drinking Guinness. I yeah. mean, it is 2024. I mean, why should you be surprised Is by it that? true with Guinness that one pint of Guinness has the same amount of calories and, you know, um, nutritional, yeah, nutritional kind of heft as a, ro a full Sunday roast? Something like that. I, I I'm not sure it's it quite really as much. It's got good vitamins in it. They used packs to say Guinness is good I'm not sure it's quite as much. But I know from when I used to do the morning show and I'd finish at one o'clock, if I was feeling a bit hungry and I ended up in the Pub. One pint of Guinness, I wasn't hungry anymore. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I think it's got more filling stuff in it. Yeah. Like said, on that sort of basis. We need to check the, ca the caloric content, but I think it's about 2,000 calories or something. 2,000 yeah. calories? I'm told 125 yeah, calories per what? Per 12 six. ounces. Oh, it's 12 oh, ounces. Okay. Okay. Is that like probably, half yeah, a pint? Probably about Quick maths. 800 calories. Yeah. Probably about the same as a woman. But it is good for you. And people used to drink it even when they were pregnant. I think it's was, got, it was the dangerous alcohol. It's got the uh, malty kind of stuff. They used yes. to call it mothering yeah. stout. Didn't That's they? what yeah, they did. Exactly, didn't like they? That. So when people yeah. were, when they were pregnant, they used to have a recommending that. I mean, our wow. neighbours, I know, elderly neighbours, that's what they used to do. Mm. Obviously, now build with alcohol, up. they used to build you up yeah. and that sort of stuff. So I have to say, I haven't noticed people, young women in pubs, drinking it. No. Particularly, it seems well, I have. It does feel like it's a. No. I mean, that, that's the other sexist thing, isn't it? Because they. <laughs> yeah. they I mean, this will be the next thing we're saying, you know, oh, all these young women are drinking pints of beer. It's absolutely <laughs> astonishing. Well, really, is it? I mean, why shouldn't they? And a few weeks ago, they were saying that, you know, actually dry January's failed completely mm. and that pub sales were soaring. And yes. then at the weekend, there was a story that pubs are absolutely on their knees and everyone's drinking low alcohol or no alcohol yeah. and it's all a disaster in the hospitality. But low alcohol stuff's Who even knows? more expensive yeah, than alcohol. They make much bigger margins yeah. on the low alcohol. So mm. dry white wine, dry sherry, dry, yeah. dry champagne, as you work on dry January. I bought some but by accident right. once, some low alcohol, well, no alcohol wine. And was it drinkable? It was once I put some proper wine in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I didn't have it on its own. I imagine it's just sugar. But I was on the same bloody display and I was, I was yes. picking up some rosé and I suddenly got it home and two of them were non-alcoholic. Yeah. And I was like, hmm. But some of them, they've done some really good flavours, but they're not Yeah, but why are you paying ridiculous amounts of money no, for No, that's it? the crazy thing. You're right. You shouldn't be paying, like, 15 quid be. for a bottle of fake wine. You shouldn't be. Should you? But there's even a few you're... bars that have opened that are non-alcohol really? bars. Yeah, there's, like, one in... I think there's one in Waterloo, there's one in Manchester where they, they serve ridiculous. only non-alcoholic beer. That is mad, isn't it? Just, that's a cafe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah essentially, Exactly. Yeah. Played chess in it or something like that. Nonsense. Anyway, we've got more to come. You're watching The Independent Republic Mike Graham, put your seatbelts on because uh, I'm taking you to the world of woke where councils are trying to charge more, you've just heard, for parking a diesel SUV. Plus, we'll have tomorrow's stories from the papers. Do not move a muscle. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic with Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The world of Work. Well, well, well. It did have to happen, didn't it? First they came for the diesels, 
then they came for the petrol versions, then the hybrids weren't immune, and now the final ignominy, they're coming for your electric car. We all knew the myth of driving electric cars to save the planet was going to be blown wide open one day. We all watched as the smug eco-zealots drove off in their shiny new purchases, laughing at us as we shelled out for the road tax they were exempted from paying. We all knew that one day they'd not be exempt, and the powers that be would soon work out that allowing the electro-nuts to get away scot-free from driving charges was a recipe for financial disaster. After all, as we see more and more local councils heading for the bankruptcy courts, it was only ever going to be a matter of time before someone suggested charging them too, not just for an electric charge, but for everything else. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that day has now arrived. And you know how much I hate telling you I told you so, but I told you so. Westminster Council in London is the latest to unveil a new system for charging to park in the borough. And for the first time, electric car users will have to pay. Welcome to my world. Residents have been told that from April, electric cars will be levied for the first time, depending on the size of their batteries. So if you've got a bloody great Tesla or an electric Mercedes estate, you'll be paying as much as £80 for the privilege of a permit, and even occasional Enviro parkers will be hit with what used to be a minimal charge for 10 minutes, but will now cost as much as any other car. Of course, the Labour-controlled council reserves its highest parking prices for those ghastly gas guzzlers that are causing storms and floods all over the world. If you're driving a BMW X5 or a Porsche Cayenne, not only have you got too much money, you'll be paying as much as 321 quid for a permit. The council claims the new scheme will incentivise cleaner, less polluting vehicles and introduce a fairer and more proportionate charging structure so vehicles are charged in accordance with the level of emissions they produce. If you're unlucky... Uh, enough to have an older car, like a pre-2015 diesel, you'll get hit with a special extra £50 charge to address the issue of emission of nitrogen oxides. They're also announcing there'll be council wardens lurking about measuring individual tailpipe emission levels of carbon dioxide. So you might want to check your rearview mirror before you back out of that space. The AA says the council has cooked up the scheme to keep the money rolling in from resident parking bays. It's a poor excuse, they say, for guzzling up more cash and the argument about CO2 just simply does not stand up. Isn't life grand? The world of woke. Now, let's look at some other stories from tomorrow's papers, and I think we have to talk about Elon Musk, as uh, the panel's still here with me. Front page of the Metro, dawn of the cyborg. Musk puts first chip in human brain... I mean, there's a lot of jokes you could make about this, isn't there? It is brilliant news, though. Is it? I'll tell you why. It's about te telepathy is what it's called. Right. And what they're doing, for people who at the moment can't speak uh, and so on and so forth, yeah. it gives a chance they can get the relevant brain waves right. where they can work out what you would have said. Yes. And also, it can, you can move things, so you can control remote controls. And so this is essentially a medical aid. Then. It's a medical aid. And there, there's a great case that so just happened, I, I talked about it extensively a, a, a few weeks ago, about a woman who's been in the world of silence for years right. of her life. They implanted this wonderful thing in her brain, and she can now talk through because it can right. work on that sort of basis. They took her wedding video so that they can turn a little meme of her, right. a little uh, avatar, right. and it can show the facial expression she would have used. It is a brilliant seismic. Sorry, shape. the facial expression she would have used. She would have used had she been able to make them herself. So, so she was paralyzed but couldn't make them. Right. It works out from the brain what she would so have done. So they've given her a fake concept. wedding video. I would, no, it was it was the real it was the real wedding video. Right. But they got the avatar uh, from that wedding. I video. see. I'm not too keen on all that. I mean, you don't like you know, it? No, 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 I'm not. No, I think so. I don't want them putting anything in my brain. Thanks. I mean, my brain works fine. Um, if it gets to the point where I can't speak anymore, there'll be a lot of people grateful for that. I would imagine. <laughs> um, 
I don't, I don't, I don't think no, so. No, I'm deeply nervous about the whole yeah. AI because I think that, you know, even the inventors and creators have yes. said, hang on a minute, there's going to be a moment when the cyborgs right. take over. Exactly. I mean, if we and make them so clever, what's then what happens there? when yeah. they turn the tables? Mm. Yeah. And at that point, they've got all our data, all our records, yeah. all the things D that we've finally digitized. Yeah, also, exactly. And what, if the the chip, and what if the chip sort of goes rogue and starts telling you or to do things? Or what if Elon Musk starts programming the chips yeah. in your brain? Exactly. Well, it used to be the $6 million man. Do you remember Steve Austin? Yeah. It's now the $44 billion man since he paid, that's what he paid I for I don't X. want him anywhere and, near yeah, my brain. No, I'm, I'm a musketeer, though. And yeah. I, I like Elon Musk. Twitter's bad just... enough, my goodness. He's got 10,000 electrodes designed to let people use devices by thinking instructions. Yeah. I mean, also, we're kind of getting in on the ground floor here i think i'll wait a while until it's been developed for some time yeah before, ironed you know, out the... it starts to become yeah offered to everybody else uh, front page of the daily mail ten thousand pages of redacted emails in the diana storm with martin bashir uh, apparently he blamed his non-white status at the bbc for the scandal over his diana interview this is an interesting story uh, he's claimed that racism led to professional jealousy um which was behind the row over the panorama scoop but of course he famously has been ex uh, has been exposed as a man who told lies, yes. who falsified documents, yeah. who paid people to falsify those documents it, it to was, convince Diana it was that and she should talk to him. Absolutely. And, and actually, what way he did it, he convinced her brother, Charles, by showing all these documents. Yeah. And Charles then convinced Diana. And what happened, it was tragic because she basically couldn't trust anybody in her yeah. life anymore. And so she died not the not trusting her closest mm. friends as a result of the scandal. Well, one of the reasons you could argue that she died was because she lost the royal protection. Because mm. she didn't want it, because she thought that even they were somehow f spying on her. So she was allowed to kind of move away from that. Because if she'd had royal protection that night, she would never have died, because they would never have let that happen. You know, mm. shocking story. It is um, a shocking story. A couple of football stories. Front page of The Sun. Uh -huh. Robbie Williams is going to buy Port Vale. Hurrah! Um, now, Port Vale, not a particularly... Um, Salubrious club, he said, waiting for the inevitable brick bats from Port Vale fans. Um, he's obviously always been a Port Vale fan, though, hasn't he? Yes. He's always talked them up. Um, so that's great news because we've Are seen they what Stoke? happened. Yeah. yeah, it's sort oh, of out excellent. outskirts of Stoke. Yeah. That's um, a great. That's a great part of the country, actually. It I'm, really I'm, is. Is that where you're from? No, no, I'm from London. Oh, okay. Well, it is a nice part of the country, and apparently um, he's hoping to build, I suppose, on Wrexham's success. Yeah, you know, Wrexham was built was bought by those two American celebrities, uh, actors, um, and they've made a great a great thing with that. It mentions he's got backers. I mean, what, one of the things that um, seems to be quite in vogue at the moment is sort of big hedge funds using celebrities to sort of ah. front their purchases of oh, really? clubs. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, because I mean, it's more popular than yeah, just so, another um, Dubai. Yeah, so it was, uh, Birmingham used the. Um, I can't think what the American sports star is called, but it's sort of like you put a celebrity right. sports star at the front okay. of something. And it's not some faceless organisation. Yeah. But it is behind the scenes, just ahead. Okay. Yeah. But Wrexham, I think, is, a, is gen genuinely the two, the well, two it's American. And what they have done that was for Wrexham. Elton John and Roger Stewart, they're really into their football, aren't they? They, they love it. Yeah. Getting celebrities yeah. to do that, it increases the brand value. Mm. Of a sport, so well done, Robbie. I think, and he's a, he loves his football. He does love his football. Yeah, he yeah. always plays quite a lot of football yeah. as well. Um, the other big football story this week has been Marcus Rashford. Ah, um, yes, uh, he was on the front page of the Sun yesterday mm -hmm. um, after his, I think, twelve or thirteen-hour bender on tequila in a Belfast yes. nightclub. Um, Piers Morgan's written a column today. Great piece by Piers. Piers is yeah. plea to troubled Rashford. You need Sir Alex to put an arm around you, but it's down to you to get a grip. Um, because he does appear to have gone slightly off the off the rails, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, I think there's a danger of um, 
making too big a thing of it. I mean, footballers always like to occasionally go out on the lash. Well, I like you know. footballers to go out on the lash. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm quite a big fan, although, although you know, you, as, a, as, as a woman, you might say I'm probably being a bit overgenerous to him. Carl Walker is behaving exactly like a proper footballer should, having several children with different women. Well, you know, I'd say more Telling like everybody that wants to ask... Several dozen children. Yeah, yeah. That, that he doesn't actually care about any of the women at all. There you go. Um, yeah. You know, driving Didn't around mean anything to him. <laughs> means nothing, you know. Um, I would prefer the Rashford that goes to a nightclub to the sanctimonious... Let's have free school dinners for everybody, Marcus Rashford, to be honest. Well, you can get both. What I like is both. So you turn around so he can do that really good course. His yeah. dinner thing was fantastic. When he's sober. Do, when he's sober. And then, when, yeah. and then go out on the lash to celebrate. Apparently, he's, he's broken up with his long-term girlfriend, which might explain why he's a bit, you know, yeah. fed up. And also, which yeah. of us has not been on a 12 or 13-hour bender? Um... I'm not sure I've been on a 12 or 13 I bet you have. I bet you've been out in the, in the old days. I probably when we have. Were young, no, when we were young, that thing where you go out for lunch and you come out yeah. and it's late at night. I've certainly been in restaurants where I've had lunch and dinner in yeah. the same place. Yes. And you've probably but I've never not gone to work. Not all the way through, yeah. way through to breakfast. His problem is that he didn't turn up for the football match yes. that he was supposed to be playing in and claimed that he was ill. Yeah, Which is but he bit, probably did feel a bit rotten. Yeah. I'm sure that. he did. But, I mean, that's the point. If you're going to do it, you've got to still turn up. And, and so play. Alex yeah, would have yeah. kept you on the straight and narrow, and that's yes. his point, is you yes. do need somebody who guides you. And the trouble with a lot of these footballers, they make a hell of a lot of money really quickly, and so often they're coming not yeah. necessarily from the richest families and so on and so forth. They don't know what to do with it. We talked about it earlier, about what do you do with your leisure time. If you've got so much money you can't spend all of it, mm. you've got to keep... That's when they get to, like, gold-plated yeah. baths and just yeah. like exactly. everything. Like, what do you do? Yeah, just so that's ridiculous. what you need to so Alex. Ten million watches. Yeah. Absolutely Ten right. million watches. <laughs> oh, talking about figures, we yeah, should just figures. correct okay. your thing. I'd like to make a public apology. Yes. Yes. I said that Guinness had about 2,000 calories. It's 200. 200. Before Ofcom come after us. 210 for a pint. 210 calories in a pint. so it's better. So you can have 10 pints. And you can go with Marcus Rashford next time. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Um, front page of the Telegraph, they got a picture of the Israeli troops disguised as medics when they went into this hospital dressed as women and doctors uh, yes, to get yeah. these guys from Hamas. Awful, Quite an extraordinary uh, uh, manoeuvre for them. Uh, but underneath it, the government's worried apparently by the UAE bid for the Telegraph. You know, there's a, yes. a consortium. The Telegraph's been running this story all the time, haven't they? Well, I mean, they have. Every not... week they've been worried. I yeah. don't care. I don't care who owns the Telegraph. Yeah, I know. To... They seem to be very bothered about who but owns the Telegraph. They do. I, I think yeah. there's a mission here. It's in no other papers. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not as if they've ever had some kind of, you know, strange, unusual, uh, sort of, you know, reclusive brothers that sit on an island in the channel. Um, who seem to control it at the moment. Yes. You know, <laughs> nobody it, seems to be bothered about and that. And it tends to be both. You own a newspaper and a football team. That used to be the thing, didn't it? And yes, that, and that was pub. your glorious side. Yeah, absolutely right. Net migration to push population to 70 million. Uh, as we said, uh, on The Times, uh, Jeremy Hunt suggesting there isn't much room for big tax cuts. Yes. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Well, he would. And then you surprise people. Then he's going to suddenly pull back. something out of the hat. They've had some bad warnings from the IMF saying that they can't afford to yeah. cut taxes. What's he going to do with them, What has it got to do with the IMF? Do you mind asking Do they mind butting out for a minute? Well, exactly. No, it might surprise you. Now, I've got a pint of Guinness here and I'm going to pour it. Just as you ought to, right? Because... Well, I've got one wow. as well. Um, I'm going to see if it properly. And that's all no, from that's me tonight. You've been point, watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to my guests. I'll see you all tomorrow at nine. Look at that head. Beautiful. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 